welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on The Green Majority podcast. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan uh, Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And um, summer has just finished returning to Hogtown in November briefly allowing restaurants to reopen on sidewalks and rehire the wait staff they had laid off after the pandemic again restricted groups of people from eating and drinking indoors. And south of the border, what is proudly, unreservedly, and unquestionably the greatest nation in the history of the world is watching democracy, uh, its democracy fall victim to a mediocre salesman, with the help, of course, of pitifully Uh, and grotesquely obsequious political allies. But first, the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season has broken the record for the highest number of named storms. Storms are named if they're large enough that it becomes necessary to track them, and the World Meteorological Association has a list of names that rotates every six years, but if there are so many storms in a season that they exhaust their list, they turned to the Greek alphabet for additional names, which they did earlier this year for only the second time in history, and now they have had to use the Greek letter theta for the first time ever. It is the 29th named storm, breaking the previous record set in 2005. Denmark is going to murder 15 million mink, an adorable animal that is farmed for its fur. This is because the coronavirus has mutated in the mink and spread back to humans as a new strain. At least 12 people have been infected by the COVID mink mutation, and the animals are being culled for fear of the mutation messing with the prospects of a vaccine. Poland, meanwhile, is in political turmoil over a proposed ban on mink farming after videos were taken showing the mink cannibalizing each other in their cages. One conservative Polish politician said regarding the ban that favoring animals over humans would be the end of Christian civilization. COVID has killed 15,000 mink so far in the U.S., while mink farms in British Columbia have yet seen no infections. Activists in 10 U.K. cities have put up fake ads in opposition to HSBC's financing of fossil fuel extraction operations around the world. Rudy Lowe, an artist who made one of the ads, is quoted in The Ecologist as saying, Quote, it's important to remember that as HSBC attempts to brand itself as invested in local communities and heroes during this critical moment, in reality they are complicit in the destruction of communities around the world. South African community leader Fikile Chungase was shot dead by five gunmen in her own home in the late afternoon on October 22nd, likely because of her opposition to a local coal mine. The coal company Tendele Coal has called for an investigation into the, quote, senseless killing, but the company has also been stoking hatred against such activists for a long time. We'll mention in this connection a report from Mining Watch that came out in June showing how the global mining industry has not slowed down and is in some cases being accelerated by the pandemic, with mines continuing to operate at all costs even as land defenders are forced to stay home mining companies presenting themselves as saviors to communities in tough times, and the industry using the crisis to gain regulatory changes in their favor. Finally, as the Arctic permafrost melts in Alaska, 
the oil company ConocoPhillips is trying to temporarily cool down the earth so it can continue drilling for more of the stuff that has been causing uh, the global warming to melt the permafrost in the first place. And moving back to the U.S. election, the U.S. Democrats uh, pushed in October for expanding offshore wind and stopping offshore oil drilling. And if Biden's able to jog his way past Trump's big, strong men to get sworn in as president in January, such efforts could continue. Of course, even if Trump does eventually accept defeat, there's a lot he could still try to destroy out of spite in his remaining two months in office. U.S. automakers have been preparing to produce more electric vehicles in anticipation of a Biden victory, with GM, for instance, recently introducing an electric Hummer, which has, quote, no limits, no emissions, and no equals. The Texas Railroad Commission, meanwhile, which, as Bloomberg notes, oversees an industry that is producing more crude than any OPEC member since, uh, except Saudi Arabia, will continue to be controlled by Republicans as staunch oil man Jim Wright has defeated his Democrat, oppo- his Democrat opponent for a post on the three-member board. Marianne Lavelle writes for Inside Climate News of various Washington veterans who are arguing that Republican control of the Senate will actually allow Biden to construct lasting bipartisan climate progress. And Alana Cohen notes for the same publication that young climate and environmental justice voters helped bring Biden the presidency. And finally, Justin Trudeau on the 9th of November became the first world leader to reach out to Biden in a call that included a mention of climate change, as well as the Keystone XL pipeline that is meant to run from Alberta to Nebraska, which Trudeau supports, but which Biden has vowed to kill. Yeah, so let's let's start with the end here and say that it is absolutely shocking to me and a testament to the work put in by climate activists in the United States, especially Sunrise Movement, that Joe Biden is significantly to the left of Trudeau on climate. You know, Joe Biden is a ancient individual who has all has a very weak progressive record uh, to go for to go for his forty seven years in office, and. Trudeau basically has run on being young, hip, with it, and, clim- and climate conscious his entire political career. You know, he marched in the in in the climate strike last year as if everyone around him wasn't protesting him specifically. And yet, you know, he's what has Trudeau done? He's got a thirty dollars price on carbon, which I am not going to say is not as nothing. That is something for sure. But the, the recent, there's a recent uh, report out from the International Institute for Sustainable Development, or IAISD, their scorecard, and Canada ranks among G20, or, uh, among, among, amongst the G20 Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, member countries, uh, dead last for both scale and support of oil and gas exploration, production, refining, and transportation and last in progress in ending support for fossil fuels. So for all of the talk of all the, of the work he's done, Canada is, it, it's, it's only 11 nations that match both of those two pieces, you know, that are both part of the G20 and all the, that are part of this G20 organization for economic uh, cooperation and development. But still, out of those 11 countries, we're last 
yet have we how Turtle has been in power for what five six years now, and so the fact that he is this first one of his first actions is going to be to try to get Biden to not kill the Keystone XL pipeline is not surprising, but it is very disappointing. Uh, if you agree, you can go on and join 350.org is currently has a has a push to get people to sign on from Canada. Basically, Canadians writing Biden saying, I know our uh, prime minister is telling you we want this. We don't want this. Please still kill it. Uh, but to you, Lauren. I, I'm not under uh, an illusion that Joe Biden is going to be like the climate champion that saves us all. But um, sort of riffing off of what we were talking about last week on the show during our big elections extravaganza conversation. Um, I am genuinely looking forward to sort of the potential situation we have coming down the pike, which is that we're going to have America and a president who is stronger on climate than Canada. And as a result means that it will sort of pull Canada um, a little bit, maybe not left necessarily. I'm I'm sort of, I'm, I'm too afraid to go that far, but like will make Canada more of an actual legitimate climate champion than it, than it really is. Cause we know we talk a huge game. We tend to not deliver, but I'm kind of hoping that when a bigger, more powerful nation actually steps up to the plate and starts um, changing policy and laying down commitments and actually following through on some green new deal ideals that we might see that trickle over into Canada because we don't, tend to hold our own against the United States all that strongly, especially when it comes to things like this, because we do like to imagine ourselves as like a socialist utopia akin to like Sweden or whatever. Um, And I don't think the liberals will really love um, a Biden government sort of showing them up, if that makes sense. I I could be, I could be totally wrong here. Um, The, the influence of the Alberta government and the fear of losing um, support of voters in those regions, what small support they have might be enough to sort of keep them in lockstep with their pre-existing support for the fossil fuel industry. But, um, I don't know, I'm sort of maybe hopeful is a big word, but like I'm leaning towards hopeful in this instance. Um, and I guess ultimately if nothing else, if Biden says Keystone is done, Keystone is done. It doesn't matter what Trudeau wants. It doesn't matter what Jason Kenney wants, unfortunately, for pensioners in Alberta. Um, but uh, yeah, it, and, it's, and it's looking like Biden's going to hold fast with that, not only because there's a whole lot of support in the states for the cancellation of Keystone, but because Obama canceled Keystone. And I don't see Biden going back on that pre-existing ruling um, when Obama was the one to sort of cancel it. I I don't see him sort of disobeying his buddy like that. I I think the other thing that to keep in mind, of course, is also that it's one of the things he definitely can do. You know, he is going to be limited. You know, in our election coverage last week, we we did it a couple days early. And so we were not entirely we were not we were not aware of the fact that there is still a small chance the Democrats could control the Senate if they win both seats in Georgia. However, I will say that they still means that the 50th vote they have to get is Joe Manchin, who is basically a is, is the if Jason Kenney, for some reason, was a Democratic senator, it would be in a coal uh, state instead of in an oil state. That is Joe Manchin. He is not going to be the climate help that you need. You're more likely to get 
like Mitt Romney or Susan Collins on board, most likely, than you are Joe Manchin. But, you know, so, so because of that, I, I think you are going to see Biden have to take the places where he can have power and use that power. And those are places like canceling Keystone XL uh, and in increasing other regulatory stuff because of the larger, bigger spending bills likely are not going to get passed in any sort of fashion because I have honestly and all respect to Marianne Lavelle. Well, she only writes that all, all, all limited respect to, quote unquote, various Washington insiders, uh, given that Marianne Lavelle just quotes them and is not actually making this case. But I have almost no faith that the Republican-controlled Senate will allow Biden to construct a lasting bipartisan climate progress. Are you kidding me? Have you watched anything of the last four years that makes you think that anything the Republicans could do will be in any way good faith and useful for anything? I just, that to me is delusional. Although I guess, like, maybe that's what happens when you're a Washington veteran, quote-unquote. Yeah. What I am excited for, and just, I know we're going to be moving on, but I did want to mention, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers of, of those who were elected, but it was really cool to see that the Democratic Socialists of America, like the vast majority of the candidates they ran were elected, which again shows that those are sort of pockets of citizenship that really, really, really are pushing for leftist, progressive, ambitious climate policy. And that every single, um, congressperson who like co-signed I, I don't know what the what the official term is but like um supported a green new deal um and the legislation that they were putting forward for it um every single one of those congress people was re-elected which indicates to me that um although it might not necessarily be exactly what like the democratic establishment is stoked to learn um there still is a lot of citizen support for um for bold ambitious climate policy and and that's sort of it's it's verifiable it's it's it can be proven quite easily by saying look these were people who were who supported a green new deal they were re-elected they were supported by their electorate um so that's really great and what that shows me is that again it's a party that maybe um maybe is becoming sort of increasingly stratified along those like leftist versus centrist lines but the the leftist progressive Green New Deal um, cohort is only getting stronger, which is really neat. And hopefully that means they'll have some influence. For sure. Last uh, last couple points. One, 76% uh, of DSA uh, supported candidates won. And and the fact that, to me, the other thing about the, about this, about this weird fight that's going on between progressives and centrists in the Democratic Party is that other progressive policies like even in Florida, the $15 minimum wage passed and won despite the fact that, you know, the Democrats basically got swept out of the state, right? And and, and the and in the, in Florida, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, were were directly in support of the $15 in fairness, but the Florida Democrats would not actually f uh, uh, fully support it. And so, you know, you see a couple places, I think in Nevada as well, the support to protect, to enshrine protections of LGBTQ plus people in the Constitution won by like 60 something percent, which is obviously way higher of a percentage than anyone else got in that state. Like no senator, you know, Biden certainly didn't, nothing else. So these progressive policies are proving time and time again more popular 
popular than you know than the than the candidates that that they are consistently running, which I think s- speaks to something important about that these are popular policies, and you, if you support the policies, you will get somewhere. Um, and the last thing I'll say before I move on, unless you have anything else to add, is uh, electric Hummers are terrible. They are the worst idea. Uh, where our utopian uh, society will not include any electric Hummers. Why are we doing this? Please stop. The Green Majority does not condone or support electrification of Hummers. Exiled Bolivian President Evo Morales has returned to his home country after spending much of the year in Argentina, while the right-wing Christian interim government that replaced him slowly prepared new elections. He was Bolivia's first indigenous president and ran a left-wing government for 12 years, turning Bolivia's economy around and bringing tens of millions out of poverty. After using the courts to defy a referendum that limited the number of terms he could serve for, he was forced out of office by the military at the behest of the right wing, even though he had won the election. He later argued in an interview with Glenn Greenwald that the coup was directly related to his decision to sell Bolivian lithium to China instead of the West, calling it a lithium coup. Now, 11 months after his exile, he has triumphantly returned, although members of his own socialist Moss party have suggested he shouldn't be coming back so soon. He was able to return because his Moss party has just taken back the Senate and the presidency in a landslide, which is a major boost for the Latin American left. The way Greenwald sees it is that it is a victory against the retrograde forces in Bolivia, Washington, and Brussels that tried to destroy Bolivian democracy. Nicole Fabricant writes for Jacobin that, quote, the new government's task will be to return to the roots of MAS as a political party of social movements, advancing future policies and politics by building sustainable power alongside indigenous peoples, trade unionists, leaders of federations, and neighborhood associations. And that, quote, MAS's landslide victory in the face of a U.S.-backed coup and a repressive right-wing state is remarkable. It should be celebrated as a huge victory for Bolivian social movements and the international left. Fabricant also notes that the new government, led by President Luis Arce, will fight the current economic crisis in Bolivia that has been caused in part by COVID-19 by expanding biodiesel production, which will lead to more deforestation, as well as lithium extraction, which overuses and contaminates local water reserves. Yeah, so it's important knowledge for our Canadian listeners is that while obviously you know the U.S. is more fulsomely comes to mind when it comes to this issue, Christine Freeland is on the same side. Like Christine Freeland basically made the case that welcomed the new government in during the during the coup last year, and or maybe it was two years ago. It was last year. Last year, sorry, the first time, uh, and 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 basically welcomed you know and, and welcomed them in as as you know apparently fighting back and clearly this election is a pretty direct repudiation of that and it, at this point it does not seem like anyone's questioning this election uh, and so sounds like they ever sounds like the first election was also probably totally fine uh, and therefore we definitely have to question you know. We, that requires scrutiny, I think. The, there has to be a question as to why the Canadian government was so willing and so happy to welcome a government that 
just walked over the will of the Bolivian people uh, to, to to declare themselves victors only to lose again in a year is, is I think, has to be considered and understood and paid attention to. The the other thing, of course, the very small other thing that's a little more, a uh, little more close to, to to the environment side of things, is you know, suck at Elon Musk. I think the your continued efforts to to you know bring together uh, quote unquote sustainability and uh, you know colonization for the use of your batteries has failed at least for one for in, in this one instance and the more the more humbling that i think elon experiences is the better for all of us is a feeling i have given that he also has recently decided that that his mars colony won't rely on any laws so you do you elon but every time you lose i am going to celebrate so by no means am I professing to be an expert in, in South American politics and policy. But, um, but yeah, I think it sort of, it bears reiterating that one of the reasons that people are so excited to see um, Evo Morales back in Bolivia, though he, though he isn't the leader, um, that is uh, Luis Arce, or Arce. Um, I'm not too sure how to pronounce that last name, but um, Luis is, is the new leader of the movement for socialism. So Evo is no longer, Evo Morales is no longer the, the, the leader of the party um, or head of the country. But one of the reasons people are so excited to see him back is because it is such a victory in the face of a concerted effort from the global North and Western nations to sort of assert capitalist dominance over, over a country that was socialist for, um, decades at this point. Um, Morales had been in power uh, for, for a really long time and had been leading that country in a way that prioritized indigenous sovereignty and rights, prioritized uh, the health and well-being of, of ecosystems. And, and that's not to say he was perfect. There was definitely criticism. I was sort of looking into it. There's, there's a lot of criticism around sort of um, uh, industry that was or was not brought into uh, the Amazon basin during Morales's um, leadership period and stuff like that. So, so nobody's saying Eva Morales is perfect, but I think there's um, understandably a whole lot of enthusiasm for seeing him back because it feels, and it is a victory in the face of um, unjust foreign intervention on the part of really wealthy global North nations. So that's really exciting to see. Um, and definitely worth celebrating. And it's really cool to see a party so wholeheartedly supported by their nation when they are so um, outwardly and enthusiastically supporting indigenous rights, socialism, um, and like rights and sovereignty and uh, the well-being of, of sort of quote unquote the natural environment. I don't like using that terminology, but but for all intents and purposes, yes. So I, I don't have anything more to say on that, just that it's it's a good news story and an otherwise bummer, bummer month, bummer year. All right, and finally, a third Mi'kmaq community, the Pictou Landing First Nation, has launched a moderate livelihood fishery in Nova Scotia to fish year-round, as is upheld in the Canadian Constitution and affirmed by the Supreme Court back in 1999. Since 1999, however, the government has failed to define a moderate livelihood, and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has failed to come to any sensible agreement for the regulation of moderate livelihood fisheries. The Sibignagadi and Potlatek First Nations in Nova Scotia have already launched theirs, and the former has faced a violently racist backlash over the past few months. 
A recent article from Bet- Brett Forrester for APTN highlights the problem with the DFO's approach so far. Instead of defining a moderate livelihood and working with First Nations to implement their plans for rights-based fishing, the DFO has wanted them to sign away their rights in exchange for cash and access to the commercial fishery and has acted as though there was no Marshall decision in 1999 by continuing to harass and fine indigenous people who are exercising their fishing rights. Forrester notes that Senator Dan Christmas, Liberal MP Jamie Batiste, and Senator Brian Francis, who are all Mi'kmaq, have proposed an indigenous-led co-management regime through the creation of an, of an Atlantic First Nations Fisheries Authority. See our previous episode, number 734, for a more in-depth discussion, discussion of the recent violence in Nova Scotia over the fisheries. In a separate yet related development, a coalition of Mi'kmaq First Nations is set to become 50% co-owners of Clearwater Seafoods, which is North America's largest producer of shellfish and sells its foods worldwide. I think the key here to remember about this last bit of that story about the 50% ownership is that this doesn't actually... The, where Clearwater Seafoods was uh, active is not actually the same jurisdiction where the um, where the Mi'kmaq were were using their their um this word of moderate livelihood the moderate livelihood fisheries exactly yeah there there are four kinds of fishing commercial moderate livelihood ceremonial and sport and this is obviously commercial fishing which is which is um offshore which is different from most of the onshore the inshore the closer in fishing which was where the moderate livelihood fishing does so while this is obviously very good news and i honestly think that most of the media is going to take this as the end of this conversation like i would be i think that's the way this is going to go it does not solve the original problem and the federal government is still responsible for doing that and should do that yeah, yeah. Um, so Mi'kmaq leadership has made it clear that they are going to continue to um, assert their rights to moderate livelihood fishing on on inshore fisheries. So like like you said, Stefan, that's going to continue. Um, and and the bans do continue or they intend to launch uh, as, as, as they're sort of calling it a self-regulated lobster fishery in line with treaty and inherent rights sort of within that within that inshore fishery area. So that's going to continue. Um, but this is still a really cool victory because a lot of the fisher folk who were um, sort of engaging in really violent um, displays and threats against Mi'kmaq fishers were people who worked for Clearwater Foods. Um, and that's and, and not that the company is necessarily to blame for that violence, but it was employees of that company who, who, who could be credited with that violence, um, which I would imagine will no longer be tolerated by these new owners. Um, because again, so um, this sort of coalition of Mi'kmaq nations owns 50% of Clearwater now in, in concert with uh, a BC food company. Um, but the, uh, sort of the specific offshore fishery in question will be fully operated, um, and is fully owned by the Mi'kmaq coalition. Um, so the area in question will be basically managed by, by Mi'kmaq, uh, fishers and by those nations. Um, even though the company itself is still 50% owned by that BC, um, corporation if that all makes sense. Um, it's still kind of convoluted. It's still complex, but it's really, really exciting nonetheless. And now we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, Stefan is going to speak with Dale Marshall of Environmental Defense about methane regulations. 
Yeah, and important to note that the day after this interview was conducted, it was discovered and a report came out that Alberta and Saskatchewan's methane emissions from oil and gas are actually two times higher than expected. And so just take that in as you listen to the conversation. It ends up being quite important. There's a tumor in the White House There's a blowhard at the gate However you listen to us, thank you so much. Uh, We are back with a special interview with Dale Marshall, uh, who is the National Climate Program Manager with Environmental Defense. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for being here. And so mm-hmm. we're talking today about methane. Actually, in last week's show, we, we briefly hinted that we would be talking about this in the future because, because of some of the stories that were going on there. And, and so great to have someone who, with your knowledge joining us. And so I wonder if you at first can just give us an overview of, you know, of methane, why it's important. And you know, our listeners, I'm certainly aware that it's a greenhouse gas, but can you explain why it's so important and what the major sources in Canada are? Yeah, so methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. Um, the volumes are smaller than what they are for carbon dioxide in terms of in terms of the emissions, but because it's so potent, it has um, a significant impact on climate change and global warming. Um, so over a 20-year span, it's more than 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So it's important in that way. The sources. I mean, the sources in Canada in particular, the oil and gas sector make up half of methane emissions. So um, methane is the main component in natural gas. So uh, oil and gas facilities have emissions of methane that come from their operations, either through leaks or um, through the normal course of, of, um, of their operation. So the oil and gas sector has ha- produces half the methane that's released in Canada. Um, there's also cattle is a an important source of methane as well. So people joke about cow farts and yes, there's a lot of methane and cattle and um, the emissions that they put out. And then the other source is, uh, is comes from landfills. So when you put a whole bunch of solid municipal solid waste into landfills, they decompose and produce methane. Oil and gas is really the focus because it's, it is half the emissions of methane and um, and it's very easy and straightforward to actually reduce those emissions. That goes into my next question actually quite well, which is really the ways to reduce it. You, you sort of mentioned that there's a broad aspect of different ways that can produce it, but, but what, are the, what are the number one ways to reduce methane? Yeah, so, um, you know, on an oil and gas facility and, you know, a, an oil well, for example, there, there are different ways you can reduce emissions. One is, Leaks are just a natural component of an oil or a natural gas facility. So there's a whole bunch of a network of pipes and you don't know where the leaks are because methane is, is odorless and, and, uh, and, and, um, and clear, so you can't see it. But if you go on to, a north, uh, to an oil and gas facility with an infrared camera, it's very easy to detect methane leaks, but you have to be there looking for them. And so that's the one, the first main way is to just detect those leaks and plug them. And you, we don't know which facilities are gonna be so-called super emitters. Like that's why you have to go onto, the, uh, onto an oil and gas well 
regularly, like multiple times a year and actually see, are, you know, with, with a camera, are there leaks happening? There are also equipment that actually in the natural course, in the normal course of its operation will just emit methane. So there are pumps and compressors that make up this network of pipes and they will actually emit methane as to help with the flow or with the pressure in the system. Um, and you could, but we, there are also variations on that equipment that don't emit at all. There's zero emitting either because they use air compressors or they um, use electricity. And so you can replace that equipment with equipment that doesn't emit at all. And then the third way is oil and gas companies will just, and especially oil companies will just vent methane. So in an oil operation, natural gas comes up and it's like, oh, we don't want this, this, we don't want to use this. We're just going to vent it to the atmosphere. Just let, just release it. And in that case, you know, if there's a mechanism to capture that methane and use it, then you're reducing emissions. And again, methane is a major component of natural gas. So in all of these cases, when you're reducing emissions, you're saving natural gas, which can then be sold on the market. So clearly there's a, an argument to do this. Uh, I wonder if you can give me, before we get into the sort of the, the, I would say the difference between federal and provincial, which is sort of what we're, you know, why you sort of are on the show right now. I mm -hmm. wonder if you can give us a history of, of methane regulations. Like, you know, where are we coming from that, that sort of got us to today? Yeah, sure. So it really started with a commitment by the Prime Minister, Prime Minister um, Justin Trudeau back in 2016, with the American president and, um, and the Mexican president to, for all three countries to reduce our methane emissions from oil and gas to by 40 to 45% by 2025. And so that commitment got turned into the objective of the federal regulations that came out a couple of years later. So in April, 2018, the, the federal government put out these regulations and, or I should say finalize these regulations and had all of those three components that I mentioned, leak detection, uh, re, you know, venting limits on how much you can vent um, and uh, the replacement of equipment that was high emitting for lower emitting equipment. Um, but then under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, the provinces are actually allowed to put into place their own regulations if they can prove that they're as strong as the federal ones. So if they show that they have the same environmental benefit, then the federal government can say, fine, like you want to put into place your rules, you can go ahead because we've deemed them to be equivalent or stronger to ours. And so that's what's happened over the course of the last year our first BC, then, um, then Saskatchewan, then Alberta were received equivalency. So their regulations were developed and eventually were strong enough for the federal government to, say, to agree to have them put into place. Alberta and Saskatchewan actually resisted for quite a while, strengthening their regulations. They came out with regulations also back in 2018 and 2019, but they were weaker than the federal ones. And the federal government said, we're not going to allow you to use your rules because they're weaker than ours. And eventually, earlier this year, both provinces strengthened their regulations in order for them to be, to be deemed equivalent to the federal rules. Yeah, and, and that news just came out quite recently. And so uh, I'm curious, as someone who you know, lives this work, are they equivalent? Well, yes. The, the, so Environment and Climate Change Canada has 
uh, a model that they use. Um, I work with people who are very technically savvy who also can use that same model and and try to figure out whether the, the regulations are equivalent. And it turns out that the newly proposed and now passed regulations with Alberta and Saskatchewan are equivalent. Um, the problem is that none of them now are, are uh, strong enough. So new data came out uh, also in 2018 and it showed that in fact, and this is the case, this has been the case in the research throughout is that emissions are often higher than what are being reported and new data basically in 2018 showed that um, in fact the federal regulations even though they were supposed to be meeting this target now were shown to not be really because of this new data and so the the provincial regulations are actually equivalent to the federal ones but all of them are too weak to actually reach that commitment of 40 to 45 percent. In fact, there's quite a, a, a significant gap of um, where the, the federal regulations and the provincial ones that replace them will only reduce them by less than 30 percent. And those are, we're talking about, you know, megatons of, of, uh, of, green, of carbon emissions that, that will have an impact over time, especially if that gap continues to grow. And so I, I wonder if you can dive a little more into the weeds maybe a little bit and, and, and describe what these regulations are actually asking for. Like, you know, what, mm -hmm. what would the government have to do to get the regulations up to a standard? Is it more right. monitoring? Is it, is it, you know, is it faster timelines on changing goods? Like what's the, what's the thing? Yeah. So um, you, we can do basically more of all of these things. Um, so leak detection and repair is a, an important component. Um, the Canadian government decided to go with three times a year um, monitoring for most of the oil and gas facilities. There are US states that, that um, say we should have four times a year leak detection. There are people who push for kind of continuous monitoring. So the use of infrared cameras kind of, you know, on all the time so that when leaks happen, you know right away. So there are ways to detect leaks more quickly and plug them um, so that in order to, to eliminate those emissions. The federal regulations also for this equipment that I was talking about, pumps and compressors and other pneumatics, um, what those regulations basically stipulated is that that equipment had to go from high emitting um, forms of that equipment to low emitting. And as I said in the opening, there's actually equipment that's available, that's, that's feasible, that is not expensive, that has no emissions. And so that is one way to strengthen the regulations is to say, forget low emitting pumps, let's go to zero emitting pumps. And so that is, that is another way that you can, um, that you can uh, re reduce emissions even more. And then there's the venting. Again, you can reduce venting limits to say, um, you know, anything over this amount. And you, if you reduce the limit, um, then what ends up happening is the, the oil and gas facility will end up capturing more of that methane and, uh, and using, and again, figuring out a way to send it to market to be sold as natural gas. So I'm, I'm Thank you for that. And, and I, I'm curious if there is 
I, you know, is there, is the federal government expected to come back with another round? Like, you know, in the same way you sort of see the Paris Accord, for example, mm -hmm. has these four year cycles of trying to ramp up their, their regulations. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get to say green, you know, to, uh, everyone else says carbon neutral, which I think is very interesting given the fact that there are other greenhouse gases exist, like, you know, like methane, you can be carbon yeah. neutral all you want. If you're emitting thousands and thousands of ton of methane, the yeah. whole operation is still meaningless. But, um, I'm curious if there is, you know, it, what's, what's expected of the federal government? Are we expecting them to come back at any point to say, okay, here's our next set of targets? Yeah, yeah. so these, these regulations basically were put into place up until the 2025 timeframe. So that's the, that's the, the year for the, the timeline for the target. Um, there are a set of regulations that came into place in 2020, like so this year. And then there's another set that are supposed to come into place and that are going to come into place in 2023. But the federal government just signed agreements with the provinces for five years. So 20, including 2020 to 2024. And so, I mean, this issue could essentially go away as an issue for four more years. Um, that's not what we want because as I said, there is a gap between what these regulations will deliver in terms of reductions and what our target is. Um, so we were urging the federal government to not finalize these agreements until the federal ones were strong enough. And that is still possible. The federal government will be assessing how effective the regulations are by the end of next year. And if it sees that, in fact, you know, what their modeling shows that the reductions aren't enough, they can strengthen them at that point and then turn to the provinces and say, okay, we've strengthened ours, you have to strengthen yours if you want to keep applying your own rules. Um, so there are ways that, it, that things can happen, greater action can happen than when the regulations um, stipulate right now. And we're hoping that, we t that those get taken up, especially with, you know, I need to mention like the President Trump pulled back on some of those regulations. Now there are lots of regulations that happen at the state level and some of them are stronger than, than Canada's, right? California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Wyoming, all have stronger regulations than Canada does. But federally in the US, President Trump pulled back on some of those rules, deregulated some of that stuff. President-elect Biden has said, he's gonna put those methane rules back into place. So there's a net additional incentive now for Canada to say, okay, well, if our regulations are too weak and the US looks like it's gonna be doing more now under President Biden, let's think about how we can strengthen our own uh, rules in order to get those emission reductions. And I, you know, let me just say again, these, right, these reductions are really cheap. Like we can reach that 40 to 45% target at about $10 a ton on average. So, in Canada right now, we have a carbon price across the country that's $30 a ton. We can reach that, that initial target by 2025 at only $10 a ton. So we have said all along, like, let's at least meet that target and then think about how we can go further because these are cheap reductions and there, you know, there are other reasons to, 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 to do this that I can talk about. But you know, the climate impacts alone and the cheapness of those reductions are strong reasons for why Canada should be thinking about how to go further.
Yeah, well, that's amazing because that's ten dollars a ton of methane, which is you know eighty times the heat warming, right? So that's yes. that is it's that's not even just ten dollars a ton compared to thirty dollars a ton. It's almost you know that's it. Yeah, that takes in. It actually takes into account the fact that methane is more potent. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So that's so so the um, so the ten dollars a ton takes into account the fact that methane is a more potent greenhouse gas. Now it uses. It uses a lower potency. Canada uses a 100-year um, time frame when we think we should use a 20-year time frame because methane is very, not only very potent, but very potent over the short term. Um, as a, so it's, it's not as long-lasting as carbon dioxide, but it's really potent when it's around. So that, so that is taken into account when I talk about $10 a ton. It's the, the equivalent of CO2. Okay, that's, that is very helpful. It's yeah. amazing how many, I've, one of the things I find so fascinating about learning more about these kind of little intricacies is the amount of thought that has gone into those differences, right? Like the fact that, yeah. you, you, know, that you thought ahead to be like, oh, we should compare the, you know, making sure you're comparing to apples to apples. And of course, yeah. You know, very important. You mentioned that there are other reasons why we should be regulating methane. I wonder if you can just give us a sort of a broad strokes overview of what those are. Yeah, so again, when methane is very potent over a short period of time, we are experiencing a lot of warming right now. And, and there are scientists that are saying that we may be coming up against thresholds that are where we tip into irreversible climate change. So reducing that, it's, it's not just the tons that you get from reducing methane, you're reducing the, the warming impact over the short term, which may allow us to not tip over into those positive feedback loops where you, it's very hard to come back from. So yes, they're cheap. You're getting rid of a potent greenhouse gas. Emissions are incredibly feasible. The International Energy Agency looked globally and said, it's completely feasible with existing technology to reduce emissions by 75%. Um, and a rich country like Canada we should be at the forefront of those technologies and to, to, um, to go further than our 45% target. Um, there's also the health impacts. So methane is a toxin. It's, it does have an impact on human health, but it's also associated with other, doc, other do, um, toxins like, um, like volatile organic carbons or VOCs that are even more uh, toxic. And so anytime you're reducing methane, you're reducing these other toxins and you're improving the, the health of workers and neighboring communities. We know that this has an impact on human health in terms of those who work or live close to oil and gas facilities. Um, the epidemiological um, research is really clear on that. Um, and then there are the jobs. Like there are literally hundreds of companies in Canada whose job is to reduce methane emissions, either because they've come up with equipment for detecting it, either because they produce, they manufacture equipment that is the zero emitting technologies that we're talking about. There's a whole coalition of hundreds of companies that do this. And so anytime you're going onto an oil and gas facility with an infrared camera, that's a job. But, you know, anytime you're manufacturing equipment and replacing the old equipment, those are jobs. Like, so there are really important job implications for this as well. And especially when we're thinking about economic recovery in a time of COVID, what better way to 
to have investments in things that will improve human health and create jobs at the same time, and of course, reduce our environmental impact. So all those things together, just make it a no brainer to try to do as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the final thing I would say is, you know, poke the, poke, you know, poke the oil and gas industry in the eye. They are the, the oil and gas companies are the largest source of emissions in Canada and they're growing. This is the only measure in Canada's climate framework that actually is focused on the oil and gas sector. So it's, you know, partly the responsibility of the federal government to make sure that those companies take responsibility for their impacts. And right now, um, coming up with weak rules for the one thing that is focused on that industry does not make sense. Like we need to really be pushing the envelope given all the other benefits that I've just let, just laid out. So two sort of one, two questions left. One question is a two part question. And the last one is sort of how folks can get involved. And so we'll mm -hmm. get to that in a second, but first I want to know in your mind, a sort of what is the future of addressing methane emissions sort of, you know, and, and, and wrapped in that administrative, if there's a particular jurisdiction or area that you or, or organization or country that you think is doing this really well, that, you know, could serve as a, you know, a benchmark that we should be expecting ourselves to meet. Yeah. Um, well, there are, there are other, as I mentioned, there are states that have stronger rules than, than we do. Colorado, for example, had a four times a year leak detection regime, has stronger limits on, on certain types of equipment. And it recently passed a bipartisan law to strengthen those regulations and got support of the industry to do so. Um, so there are places where they're, that, they're doing, that they're doing better than us. Norway has a very large oil and gas industry for the size of its economy and its uh, population. And it is putting into place much stronger regulations, especially, you know, a lot of it is offshore um, in terms of reducing those emissions. So there are places that are thinking about this that want to go further. Um, I think that we should be pushing for virtual elimination of methane by 2030 um, because the feasibility is there. We know the different sources of methane on oiling at in wells and other oil and gas facilities. Um, and so we really need to keep pushing and we're hoping that the federal government not only takes greater action to meet our 2025 target, but then also commits as part of our Paris agreement to go further in the 20, by 2030. Um, I, you know, I'll mention, because this is something that is important as well, the other way that we reduce methane is by reducing the size of the oil and gas industry. And that is something that we need to do. Like we need to phase out fossil fuels. Like fossil fuels are the source of climate change. Reduce like phasing those out over their one or two or three decade period. That's, you know, in Canada, a 20 year period is long enough to be able to make sure that workers and communities are taken care of. And at the same time, um, take responsibility for climate change. And so I think over the course of, you know, over the short term, let's make the operations more, less emitting and closer to zero emissions. But over the medium term, we really do need to be phasing out um, the fossil fuel sector, including oil and gas. For, for Canada, that's the oil and gas sector is the important one. For sure. Uh, so, okay, final question. 
folks uh, have now been convinced uh, that that methane <laughs> must be uh, must be reduced in Canada. How can we how can we do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, people can get involved. We we have a petition on our website, environmentaldefense.ca, that you can go to and sign, urging the federal government to to go further on climate on on with respect to methane emissions in particular. Um, we are urging the government to make sure that it meets its target for 2025. If people are so inclined to write a quick email to their MP or call up the constituency office, this is something that really does have an impact. Like my bias is on my business card. When I go in and meet with the minister or the minister's office, they know where I'm coming from. When MPs hear from their people who live in their writing, when they get a call or an email saying, hey, we really need, you know, we've heard that we can go further on methane emissions and there's all kinds of reasons to do it. Like that has an impact. And, <laughs> you know, ironically has a bigger impact than, than me going into a minister's office and saying you need to do more. So, you know, to, to, in whatever way that can be communicated with decision makers, provincially or federally is useful. And of course, you know, supporting us with respect to signing our petition allows us to then have more clout when we go in and, and meet with, with officials to try to push them. Um, and, you know, making the point around the U.S. being back on board in the Paris Agreement, right, That's, and, and wanting to do a lot more with a, a plan that is more ambitious than ours. You know, what, what, you know, what President-elect Biden has put out there is something that I'm excited about. Obviously, not every single piece of it's going to be kept passed because politics, um, but the ambition is there and Canada needs to try to match it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dale Marshall, National Climate Program Manager with Environmental Defense. Have a wonderful day.